0: Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 as we continue our study. I am blessed in so many ways, and if if I don't start with that in the morning, God reminds me pretty quickly to start with that. I was blessed yesterday to see... Uh, a group of human beings fall into place without really any coordination or instruction to to reach out to our community um, and that was a great experience and it's okay to use the word pride that I, I was proud of you all because Paul uses that word. It's not a elevation of people, but it is a sense in my soul that I was very proud to do that. Another one of the things that I'm grateful is that we have, Acts 1711 Bereans in our hearing in this room, and one of the things that that does and benefits me is that it is guardrails for me as a teacher, Um, and it was pointed out to me last week when I made a case for um, the possibility of Abraham and Terah going up to Haran, and then as they leave there he leaves terra behind that part is true we can be sure about that it is likely that terra is from haran and that that's why they went there and that terra originally made idols and sold them all that is true um, and the call on abraham is true there's also when you look closely at the verses i think it's like verse 26 of genesis 11 and then the last verse of chapter 11 and then Acts chapter 7 and verse 4, it's difficult to reconcile the numbers. And another possibility is that even though it says in Genesis 11 that after he became 70 years old, he became the father of Abram, when you look at what Stephen says, it's possible that he was actually 130 years old when he became the father of Abram and that Abram is listed first because of his prominence and not because of his being firstborn, Those are both possibilities, but what I appreciate most is that people are looking that closely, that people are saying, wait a minute, how does this jive here? So the the principles of what Abraham did are secure, and when I present something that's a possibility, I need to make more clear that there's another possibility. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we dive in. Heavenly Father, as we look, as Selah read, that the faith that we're asked to walk by, or as we read in John 13, to do by, um, that Jesus Christ is the pioneer of faith. He's the perfector of faith. And it doesn't say of our faith, it simply says of faith. So he is the forerunner and the example of doing what his father said to be an example for us to do as he says. So help us to to understand faith more clearly today. In Jesus' name, amen. So we looked a lot at Abraham's life last week. We've got quite a few verses to go through. We're not going to touch base on every person very much Um, in the rest of the chapter. We're going to look at amazing examples of faith as we did last week. Um, We're going to find the same thing to be true, the same two things to be true. One is that God operates in faith. Jesus Christ himself operates in faith. Um, In other words, what he is telling us to operate in is what he operates in. So this, this realm of Activity and obedience and serving God um, is called faith. So when we step in there, um, we read last week, and James will refer to someone else, that a person's faith is incomplete if they don't do what God says. So you can decide for yourself if God will accept incomplete faith in heaven. Um, but very clearly in the chapter of faith, we are told, this person by faith did. This person by faith did. So faith is the mode in which we obey God. And that begins with our repentance, Luke 24, 47, and it is a a response to the lordship of Christ in which we step and not in perfection, but in submission, we choose to follow him with our life. And then we are justified and we are ultimately rewarded, verse 6, by the things that we do by faith. We pick up our text today in verse 21, or verse 20, by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau in regard to their future. By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of Joseph's sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was, his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites from Egypt and gave instructions concerning the burial of his bones. So as we just scan over these first few examples, we think, well, wait a minute. It didn't seem like Isaac was all in in what he was doing with his sons. He kind of stumbled and disobeyed and... Um, but when the time came, when the moment came, the right son was in front of Isaac. In that moment, he blessed Jacob. And in that moment, God gave the blessing through Isaac to Jacob. So Isaac understood Lately, later, even though he wasn't as faithful as he should have been to that moment that he had done what God wanted him to do. And he could not, no matter how much Esau would beg, give him the same blessing. Because God had already made that determination. And he was probably heavily convicted by the fact that Rebekah had been told this many years, or not many years, but years earlier. Before they had come out of her womb, she said the older will serve the younger. Jacob being the younger of the twin brothers and Esau being the older. We see Jacob being referred to, and we're going to look at this um, in a moment. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of his sons and worshipped as he leaned on the top of his staff. So Jacob is 147 years old. He's been in Goshen now for 17 years, and he is dying, and he is you can just picture him barely able to stand, leaning on his staff, having each son paraded in front of him, and God spoke through him into the life of each son. So we see a description of his boys, if you want to say that, but we also see the future being told through each of his sons, and Jacob, like Isaac, is speaking for God. He is prophesying over his sons, and he is telling the future as he is doing that, and then Joseph, we see that by faith, at the end of Joseph's life, which we will look at that a little bit too, he actually prophesied the Exodus. So from the time Jacob at 130 years old came to Goshen to the time that they would leave was 400 years. And Joseph prophesied that and he Demanded of his body, his bones, to be buried in the promised land. So let's turn to Genesis 49 and look at some of these examples of faith. In Genesis 49, this is, Jacob is a little bit more in tune with God than his father was. So his father says he's going to bless his sons because he's about to die. He doesn't die for many, many years after that. Jacob knows he's about to die here. As I said, he's 147 years old. Um, we, we were told that earlier before he blesses his sons. And we're going to pick it up in verse 9 as his son, Judah, comes before him. And he would have made physical contact with him, leaning on this staff and saying to Judah, You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? Judah would become the warriors of Israel. They were the marines, if you want to call them that. When the war started, they were the first ones in the battle scene. And he's describing that. And then from, as we read forward, he is prophesying the millennium. And the ruler in the millennium. Through the line of Judah. Verse 10, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So when we go into the time of judges, someone who's lesser known, the first judge of Israel is Othniel, who is from the tribe of Judah, When they would go into war, Judah would go first, and this obviously pictures David in the future, which is long after this time. It would be nearly a thousand years later when David would take the throne. He would have the scepter, and it says here that the scepter would not leave Judah until he to whom it belongs comes, and that the the obedience of the nations shall be his. This is a a millennial promise in the book of Genesis, verse 11, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes, his eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. This is a, a figurative picture of the millennium, that the the, the, the wine which is promised throughout like Jeremiah and other places, that the abundance of Israel in the millennium is going to be so rich. Remember when they went into the promised land and, and they had just a few grapes and two men could barely carry them? That's going to be what the millennium is going to be like. And they're going to have so much wine that they're going to use the wine for laundry detergent to wash things. And this, this picture of these these dark Jewish eyes with the white showing clearly is the opposite picture of these undernourished, trapped in Jerusalem people. In 586 A.D., they were gaunt and skinny and their their skin would have been turning yellow, but it talks about this richness, this boldness, this picture of health that is describing the millennium. Turn to Genesis chapter fifty. In Genesis 50, Joseph is abducted when he's 17 years old. He never does anything that we know of. I'm sure he was a sinner like us, but he never, there's no record of Joseph doing anything that sinned against God. And this 17-year-old boy is sold as a slave by his brothers He's a slave in Potiphar's house. He goes from there to prison. And at the age of 30, which I don't think is a coincidence because that's the age David becomes king. That's the age Jesus begins his ministry. 30 is a significant number in that way. At the age of 30, Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt. He is the man in charge in Egypt. So by this time... Um, In Genesis 50, Joseph is 56 years old now. So it's been 26 years that he has been prime minister of Egypt. We look in verse 16. So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. I just want to catch you up a little bit here. What has happened is after Jacob blesses his sons, he dies. And everybody but Joseph calls a meeting, a a secretive meeting. And in that meeting, they decide, you know, Joseph could retaliate. Let's tell him that dad said, now, when I die, don't harm these boys, but I want you to forgive them. And they come to Joseph with this ruse, and they're telling this elaborate story of everything, how Jacob told them that you should actually bless your brothers and and not retaliate against them. And they say in verse 16, they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. Joseph knows. Joseph is so in tune with God, it is like they're connected on the internet and it breaks his heart that, he, that they would have to think that he would harm them. Verse 18, his brothers then came and threw themselves down before him, which is a prophecy Joseph made at 17. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. But God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done in the saving of many lives. So then, don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And be reassured. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them drop down to verse 26. So Joseph died at the age of 110, so we're at 1805 B.C., if you're interested. And after they embalmed him, he was placed in a coffin. What he had asked before is for his body to be taken to Canaan, to this specific burial ground that comes back to Abraham. And they do that when 400 years From Jacob coming there, so it would be 400 years minus 17, from this moment right here, um, Joseph tells them to do that as he prophesies the Exodus. Turn back to Hebrews. You can stay close there. We're going to be in Numbers next. But in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 23 through 28, the two prominent men most mentioned in Hebrews 11 are Abraham and Moses for good reason. Verse 23 By faith Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Were they scared? Probably. Did they did they know that this would go through and God's plan would go forward? Probably not. But their fear was only directed vertically. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So Jacobed and Amram only feared upward. And because of that, they took this child, which I'm sure every mother in some sense says, my child is no ordinary child. Um, so I don't know how much they knew as far as spiritually that that was true, but it is mentioned by Paul, so it is significant. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused. There's insight here that we don't get as clearly from Exodus. He refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He is positioned in as hard a place in Egypt as you could be positioned. I don't know how many times this shows up in our lives, but the more people have, the less likely God has a place. The more people have their wants met, the less their need seems to be God. Moses had everything. He was being shaped to be Pharaoh. Over... Pharaoh's son, because he thought that this was his daughter's son. And we have insight from Paul here that Moses chose to be mistreated. He chose to align himself with Abraham and his descendants. So what all Moses knew theologically, we don't know. But he stood strong, verse 26, he regarded disgrace... For the sake of Christ, as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt, because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses was resolved. He didn't step into Midian and then step back into Egypt. He stepped into Midian and God shaped him as a shepherd for 40 years. He's 80 years old when he goes back to Egypt, when he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And the resolve that is there and the insight here that Moses, I'm sure, knew that the theophanies, the visuals of God, seeing God walk as Moses is looking behind him. God hides Moses' eyes so he can only see what is left behind, which is really what we see. When we look at creation, when we look at this cloud of witnesses that Selah read about, these people who have stepped by faith for many years, Moses knew Christ. He knew the angel of the Lord as the Son of God and the future Messiah. And in in John chapter 5, Jesus makes crystal clear that Moses knew who Jesus was. He wasn't Jesus yet, but Moses knew that the person he was communicating directly with, like no human being in history, was the Messiah. Verse 27, by faith he left Egypt, not fearing the king's anger. Was he scared? You read Exodus, it sure sounds like it. Was he fearing Pharaoh more than God? No, he was not. He persevered because he saw him who was invisible. And that's the cleft of the rock where he was and he appeared to Moses as he walked past him which incidentally if you look closely at the Gospel of Mark it says as Jesus was about to pass by them he said it is I. In other words I am which is what he told Moses from the burning bush so those Words would have really ringed in the apostles' ears. Um, Verse 28, by faith he kept the Passover and the application of blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn would not touch the firstborn of Israel. And the destroyer, Moses tells us in Exodus, was actually Jesus, the Son of God. Turn to Numbers chapter 12. We're going to do a little bit of reading to understand the uniqueness of Moses. Moses had a lot of scars and a lot of wounds that came from the Israelites. I don't think Moses was ever really scarred by Egypt and who they are and what they did, but he was hurt often by his own people. And in this place in Scripture, he is hurt deeply by those that are closest to him. Um, And that's, again, I think we see in this a picture of why Jesus says to Peter, do you love me more than these? He would have said to Moses that when he's with his sister, his older sister and his older brother who are traveling with him. Um, And we come out of in chapter 11, this picture where God gathers the 70 elders and he's going to do what Jesus does in John chapter 20 and in Luke chapter 24. He's going to put the spirit on them like he did David and several others, not in them but on them. And the spirit came down so powerfully that two men who weren't fully complying had the spirit come on them. And his young disciple Joshua says, what are we going to do about this? And Moses makes clear to Joshua, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Yahweh. And that points to the humility of Moses. Chapter 12 and verse 1, after that event, Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife referring to Zipporah, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked. Hasn't he also spoken through us? And the Lord heard this. We have a a verse in your Bible that is in brackets next, meaning that it's parenthetical, meaning that it's not as I understood it for years and years. Moses didn't write verse 3. When we see parenthetical things in scripture, someone like Ezra is is taking with the Holy Spirit on him the liberty to write something that Moses wouldn't write that was true. And he puts this, so we have this verse in the middle of this text. Now Moses was very humble, was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. So a scribe at one point interjects this at the leading of God so that we understand Moses. So Joshua is like, Moses, look what they're doing. You're the man. You're in charge here. Look at these sinners, much like James and John saying, should we call down fire on these people? And and Moses says, look back in verse 29 of chapter 11, but Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So the same person who refused wealth and riches and chose to be mistreated and is looked up to by Joshua as the man under Yahweh. And we know by Moses' response that Joshua is trying to protect Moses and his authority. And his position. And Moses says, Joshua, it's not about me. I wish everyone could meet God the way I do. I wish everyone were a prophet. I wish God's spirit would be on everyone. And ultimately, when Christ came, that happened. Verse 4, at once the Lord said to Moses, so you can read from verse 2 to 4, and notice that there's not a gap there. Verse 2, has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked, "'Hasn't he also spoken through us?' "'And the Lord heard this. "'At once the Lord said to Moses, "'Aaron and Miriam, come out to the tent of meeting, "'all three of you.' "'So the three of them went out. "'Then the Lord came down in a pillar of the cloud, "'this Shekinah glory that we call today. "'He stood at the entrance of the tent "'and summoned Aaron and Miriam.' When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why, when you were why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had a defiling skin disease, and he said to Moses, Please, my Lord I ask you not to hold this hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not be like the do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, "Please, God, heal her." The Lord replied to Moses, If her father had spit in her face, would she not have been a disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days. After that, she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the people did not move on until she was brought back. I, I would venture to say that was a long seven days. After that, the people left Hezaroth and encamped at the desert of Paran. We will read later in Deuteronomy where when Moses comes down and, and and God says to Moses as they're coming down the mountain, what is happening upon his arrival before he gets there? And Joshua hears the noise and it, it sounds joyous and Moses says no. They're basically, to paraphrase, there's sin going on down here. He comes down and sees it. He breaks the tablets and throws them to the ground. And he says, Aaron, what's going on? And the last thing Aaron says is, we threw this gold in the fire and a calf came out. And in Deuteronomy, we learn that right then, God was going to strike Aaron dead. And Moses stood between them. That's Moses. That's this most humble man on the face of the earth saying it's about him. And he stood and saved Marion's life from leprosy and Aaron's life from being struck dead. And he was, we're, we're learning what the point is here. This is why God chose Moses. Moses had a hard life. He he never had an easy moment from the time he left Egypt. He would live 80 more years um, as a shepherd than in the wilderness with, with a bunch of whining Jews for 40 years would have been a difficult path. And Paul is pointing that out as we go back to Hebrews chapter 11 in verses 29 and 30, Israel is corporately chosen, as I've said before. It is different um, than God dealing with Moses or Abraham as as followers of Christ. He uh, He would deal with Israel always. If as a nation you just do what I tell you to do, I will bless you. If you don't, I will curse you. So we have this Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal literally telling these things back and forth as they go into the wilderness. And we see that whenever Israel was faithful, God did amazing things. Verse 29, by faith the people passed through the Red Sea as on dry land. But when the Egyptians tried to do so, they were, do so they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. So whenever they did obey the commands of God, God did amazing things. Things that the whole world, the whole planet heard about. There is not a known people on planet Earth in 2022 that has never heard of the Exodus. Um, even the Hittites, is there? they denied that there were Hittites They know now that they are and they had hieroglyphics inside caves on walls of the the Jews going through the Red Sea. Everyone knows about that and that's why God used Pharaoh who would never believe to take him to that extent so that other people would believe. Verse 31, by faith the prostitute Rahab because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. So when Jericho did fall, everything fell but this one column in which Rahab apparently lived on the top of a very tall wall, left standing, and she was left alive because of faith. And I believe that faith was in place before the spies came. You see in your notes there, Joshua 2, 8 and 9, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. And I think of this, this picture of this meeting of these three individuals of Rahab and I think Salman is one of the spies, I think, because he married, she marries Salman who becomes the father of Boaz, who becomes the father of um, Obed, who becomes the father of Jesse, who becomes the father of David. So this prostitute... And one of these Jews in the promised land coming there becomes the line of Jesus Christ. And we see that written down in Matthew. And it would have taken great faith for these two men to go there. But I don't know who had more faith. When they get there, she says to them, I know that your God is going to take this place down. And we're scared as a people. We are terrified. Of you people. And she hides them, risks her lives, and is spared her life. Turn to James chapter two. We're real close there. The last two verses, after we looked at James two in regards to Abraham, verse 24 in regards to Abraham, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do, and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So people will say, just believe, and the question then raises from verses like that, can you go to heaven with dead faith? Because as the body without the spirit is dead, faith without obedience is dead. That's what God says. Back to chapter 11 of Hebrews. Verse 32. We have a lot of people here and a lot of names that were faithful and there are a lot in the Old Testament that aren't listed here. Um, But Paul is giving us a pretty exhausted list. Verse 32 And what more shall I say? I do not have to tell. I do not have time to tell you about Gideon who was hiding when Jesus found him and he was a great warrior when he moved by faith. Barak and I will ask God why Barak is in there when we get to heaven and Deborah is not because if there's no Deborah, there's no Barak. But the truth is God is interested in what we do. So when it came time to do, Barak went to war and Israel won a great victory in the book of Judges. Similarly, Samson, we know that he was a sinner and we also know that he did things by faith that allowed God to do great things. Jephthah was a half-breed and he was rejected by the Jews, but he was a great warrior. So when they were scared and they were in trouble, they went to Jephthah so we know Jephthah's biggest mistake was with his daughter, um, but we know that his biggest triumph was when he moved by faith, according to Hebrews 11, to be God's general on earth. And about David and Samuel, again, two great men of faith who we could, we could obviously go in and look at them further. Two very important men, the most important judge, Samuel, the line of... Christ, beginning with David. Verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, that would include David, administered justice, that would include Joseph, that would include Daniel, who was the prime minister of Babylon and Persia, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, not hard to figure out who is in that group, quench the fury of the flames. At least three names come to mind there. And, and their testimonies, if we went to Daniel 6, has your God, whom you continually serve, rescued you from the lion's mouth? And we look closely at the language in Daniel 6 and we see that God, Dad, Daniel says, God sent his angel, singular, that Jesus Christ Pre incarnate went into the lion's dead and shut their mouths. How did Jesus do that? By faith. Whose? His. Why did he do it? Because of Daniel's faith. Daniel didn't know he wasn't going to be eaten alive, but he knew who God was. When Nebuchadnezzar said to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I you have to acknowledge me as your ruler and your authority. No, we don't. You can burn us in the fire. God can rescue us from the fire. But even, even if he does not, he's God. And their faith rescued them from the fire. And as we read on, we'll see that is not always the case. It is not always God's will to rescue. So, verse 34, Quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword. Um, someone like Jeremiah when Nebuchadnezzar finally in 586 BC and even before that takes down Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar knows from God, leave Jeremiah alone. And he does. And Jeremiah lives out his days in Jerusalem. So he's another one who escaped the sword. They didn't all escape the sword, but some of them did. And according to this, when they did, they did it by faith whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. So weakness became strength. Think of the Apostle Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for when in your weakness um, my power is most evident. Verse 35. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. And we'll look at that in the last verse, but for now, let's look at these some of these women. Go to 1 Kings who received back their sons. Their stories of Elijah and Elisha and um, these two examples mirror each other very much Elijah is made an example in the book of James chapter 5, how when he prayed by faith, it stopped raining. When he prayed by faith, it rained again. When he called down fire from heaven, fire came down from heaven. Elijah was an uncertain human being. Elisha, who replaces him, never wavers one time in the Bible. In fact, Elisha is called as a prophet to do the things that Elijah was unwilling to do. But, Elijah is an awesome example because the type of person Elijah was, when he, whenever he obeyed God, God did great things. Um, so the stories are similar. They, they're in foreign territory. They, they find a widow um, or or a woman, I should say, whose, whose womb is closed. And we forget about these women when we think about Sarah and Hannah and Rebecca and Rachel and Elizabeth and others. Um, but these stories are very similar. So we'll look at Elijah's story a little bit in chapter 17 of 1 Kings. And we pick it up in verse 20. Verse 19, we'll start there. Elijah, give me your son, Elijah replied. What has happened here is she finally has had a son, and an only son, and now her son is dead. And Elijah is feeling just like the woman is here. Why, why God? Why has this happened? Give me your son, Elijah replied. He took him from her arms, carried him into the upper room where they were staying, and laid him on his bed. Then he cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, have you brought tragedy even on this widow I am staying with by causing her son to die? But then he moves by faith. Then he stretched himself out on the boy three times and cried out to the Lord, Lord my God, let this boy's life return to him. The Lord heard Elijah's cry and the boy's life returned to him, and he lived. Elijah picked up the child and carried him down from the room into the house. He gave him to his mother and said, Look, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord from your mouth is truth. Turn to 2 Kings in a very much parallel story years later with Elisha, he is a man of resolve that is uncommon even to the Bible. We never see him waver one time in the Bible. He begins his ministry, we hear of the chariots of fire, by saying to Elijah, before you go up, because God's already told Elisha he's going up, he says, "I I want a double portion of the spirit that's on you. I want twice as much of the Holy Spirit, Elijah, as is on you. And so Elijah says to God, what's the deal here? And, And he finally tells Elisha, he says, if you see me go up, you will have a double portion of my spirit. So he sees these chariots of fire take Elijah up to heaven. And he knows immediately. There is so much Holy Spirit on Elisha that, that when he dies, they throw him in wartime into this cave and, and some Moabite bandits go in there and they're taking a dead body and they're set it down next to Elisha's bones and it touches his bones and the man comes back to life. So the, the, the spirit on earth during Elisha's time um, Everywhere Elisha would have gone, people would have known, as that woman said to Elijah, that God is working through him. So in 2 Kings chapter 4, if we go, we won't do a lot of reading here, but in verse 16, he does with her what God did with Sarah. He says to this woman, about this time next year, Elisha said, You will hold the sun in your arms. That's what God told Sarah. And this woman is like Sarah's initial reaction. Like, come on. I'm an old woman. I've never had a child. Um, Please don't get my hopes up like this. We're just kind of skimming through the story. Verse... Um, uh, We'll read on from verse 16. No, my lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. But the woman became pregnant, and then in the next year, about the same time, she gave birth to a son, just as Elisha had told her. The child grew, and one day he went out to his father, who was with the reapers. He said to his father, My head, my head, his father told the servant, Carry him to his mother, After the servant had lifted him up and carried him to his mother, the boy sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. She went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God. They had a special room for Elisha to stay whenever he was there. The man of God then shut the door and went out. She called her husband and said, "'Please, send me one of your servants and a donkey "'so I can go to the man of God quickly and return.'" Why go to the man today, he asked. This is one of the many men that is out of touch. It's not the new moon or the Sabbath. That's all right, she said. She saddled the donkey and said to her servant, Lead on, don't slow down for me unless I tell you to. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When she saw, when he saw her in a distance, the man of God said to his servant Gehazi, Look, there's the Shunammite. Run to meet her and ask her, Are you all right? Is your husband all right? Is your child all right? Everything is all right, she said. When she reached the man of God at the mountain, she took hold of his feet. Gehazi came over to push her away, kind of like Joshua pushing those two elders away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone. She is in bitter distress but the lord has hidden it from me and has not told me why did i ask you for a son my lord she said didn't i tell you don't raise my hopes elisha said to gehazi tuck your cloak in your belt take my staff in your hand and run don't let don't greet anyone you meet and if anyone greets you do not answer lay my staff on the boy's face but the child's mother said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. This is exactly what Elisha did with Elijah when he was going up to heaven. I will not leave you. So he got up and followed her. Gehazi, I went ahead of him and laid his staff on the boy's face, but there was no sound or response. And this is, I believe, because of her faith, not because of God's unwillingness to do that. So Gehazi went back to meet Elisha and told him, the boy is not awakened. When Elisha reached the house, there was the boy lying dead on his couch. He went in, shut the door on the two of them, and he prayed to the Lord. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth. This is an interesting picture here with the boy spread out and him laying, literally, mouth to mouth, arm to arm, every body part. Then he got on the bed and lay on the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out on him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away and walked back and forth in the room. Then he got on the bed and stretched out on him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. Elisha summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. And he did. When she came, he said, take your son. She came in, fell at his feet, and bowed to the ground. Then she took her son and went out. Let's go back to Hebrews. That sounds like a a fictional story. Just walk through that story as the woman, as Gehazi, as her servant, as the husband. And what what an amazing picture of the grace of God that followed those two prophets wherever they went. And Jesus will say in the Gospels, you know, in Luke chapter 4, Jesus pulls open Isaiah and says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to, um, to paraphrase, to a, a anoint and heal the sick and to spread the Gospel in the year of the Lord's favor. And they're like, man... This is amazing. No one has ever taught like him. And then he says, you know what? There were plenty of widows in Israel, but I had, to, I had to, to bring someone back to life in Zarephath because there were no women in Israel who had faith like her. Then they took Jesus and tried to kill him within a, probably a 10-minute span, telling them from Isaiah... I'm him. I'm the Messiah. I'm who Isaiah is talking about. And they're amazed. And then he says, you people don't have faith. And they try to kill him. Back in Hebrews chapter 11, we pick it up in verse 36. Some faced jeers and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. Part of Paul's personal testimony as he's writing this. They were put to death by stoning. Those would have been hard words for Paul to write because he would have remembered vividly Stephen and and his role in that. So they were put to death by stoning. It's interesting, Stephen wasn't saying, Lord, rescue me from the rocks. He's saying, Lord, forgive these people. They don't know what they're doing. And he sees Jesus standing in heaven, the one time we see him standing before revelation in heaven, and he's greeting his servant. I think he is standing there. I don't want to be wrong about that, but he's greeting his servant Stephen and welcoming him home. So they were put to death by stoning. they were sawed in two. Um, John lived until the turn of the century, and James, his brother in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2 was sawed in two. It says he was killed with a sword. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins so apparently already by Paul's time in the Roman Colosseums they would skin a goat and they would sew it on a Christian and tie their hands and they would send them out and they would turn lions loose. And it says here that these people died by faith. That their faith didn't change. Verse 38, or I didn't finish verse 37, they went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains. You think of Elijah and Moses there, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith. Yet not one of them received what had been been promised. For since, and look closely at this verse, since God had planned something better for us, the church, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. So we are, as we turn to Romans chapter 8, we are the first fruits of the resurrection. Paul is the the teacher of that. And he explains that in 1 Corinthians 15, and he's explaining that in Romans chapter 8. What Paul is explaining here in a broad sense is before he created Adam, he knew he was going to give free will, he knew his son was going to die, 1 Peter 1.20. And his plan was to redeem those who followed his son. And in that plan, the first fruits of the resurrection would be the church. And that plan of resurrection was for everyone. So these people who are being described as having great faith are brought into what the church um, is going to experience first, and that's the first fruits of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the first fruits of God's plan of salvation, and the first fruits of the resurrection. That's why the rapture precedes the resurrection of the Old Testament saints. So we pick it up in verse um, 22. Paul says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves, we the church, we believers in the church age, who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And in the, the Greek, it's really describing two things. Holy Spirit didn't used to be capital in there I hope it is in your Bible because it is to be it's the first fruits of the Holy Spirit we are the first ones to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit nobody before the church was indwelt they would have the spirit on them and then off of them but never indwelling and then we are the first fruits also of the plan of redemption and the first fruits of the resurrection so he says in verse 23 not only so but we ourselves who are the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly and wait eagerly for for our adoption to some chip, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, and we talked a lot about hope in Hebrews chapter six. We are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. So in the 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 Greek word here when we see wait eagerly in verse 23 um, the, the Greek word means expect fully there's no doubt you're going to be resurrected so Paul says in Hebrews that none of these people in chapter 11 received what was promised only what God planned for the church and the rapture and the indwelling of the spirit is God's plan, and they will be brought into that plan. So wait eagerly. We read in Hebrews eleven six: by faith, without faith, it is impossible to please God. For everyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Do what He says. Eagerly await. That's what the the Greek here um, for. Eagerly await means this, this resolve, this I'm sure, this I know why I do what I do. And then in verse 24, For in this hope, this certainty, this faith operation arena where we obey Christ because we know and we therefore act like it's true, for in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. So the word hope is applied to Christ. Paul says in Hebrews 6 that our forerunner went into the inner sanctuary in heaven and he puts hope there um, himself as an anchor for our souls. That it literally is, as the song on casting crown says, I'm not holding on to you, you're holding on to me. John chapter 10 and verse 30 that God is literally holding us from heaven, from the inner sanctuary, as Hebrews 7.25, the accuser is there, and Jesus is there defending us 24-7. In this hope, we are saved. If you realize that, you know that to be true, you're going to operate in response. Faith. Paul says, we don't hope that this gets better. We don't hope that the right president will turn things around. We don't hope that the church will always be faithful. Our hope isn't an I hope, it's a my hope. And my hope is anchored in the inner sanctuary by Jesus Christ our forerunner and pioneer of faith, as Selah read today. Verse 25, But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. That's an important Greek word. Patience and endurance are often interchangeable in English from the Greek word. So this Greek word means, which is hapone, enduring, patient, steadfast. How many times does Paul say stand firm? Stand firm. Stand firm. How? By faith. By hope. So, if faith is being sure of what I hope for, I'm steadfast. I'm enduring. I'm obedient. I'm eager. I'm earnest. All those words describe the same thing. You can see if that's true. You can visualize that in a person's life. So patiently does not mean calmly and resting back. It means enduring and it means steadfast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I don't know why you chose for us to be the first fruits. I know the timing of it relates to your son's resurrection. And I don't know that I ever appreciate being in the church to the extent that paul is describing it that somehow moses abraham joseph daniel these men knew that there would be a work of the holy spirit through the death burial and resurrection of your son and that they would anticipate the millennium, and they would know that before the millennium they would receive the resurrection that we will receive before them. Thank you for hope. Thank you for faith. Thank you that love will proceed and exceed them all one day soon when we actually have what today we hope for. In Jesus' name, amen.